Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. is verses 16 through 21. Uh, We're going to back up to verse 13 to read uh, just to get a bit of the context because the context back in 13, 14, and 15 does very much influence what we'll be saying about 16 through 21 there. Um, While you're turning, uh, one announcement uh, that I'll pass on to you is that um, this, this coming Tuesday, Um, There's a meeting that's going to happen that evening um, that I'm hoping will be one of great interest uh, in the church. Uh, There's a group in the church having a conversation about the possibility uh, of beginning a Christian school, uh, possibly some kind of uh, homeschool co-op, those kinds of things. Right now, it is simply a conversation about the possibility. So please don't come away saying True Vine starting a Christian school, okay? There's a conversation about the possibility of those things. And so we know there are a number of parents who are very interested in this. Um, so we're wanting to at least explore this. We've asked a representative from a Christian school to come in and meet with us as a church. So it, it's the kind of thing where, you know, if we have the meeting and, you know, almost nobody's there, we're going to kind of gauge that as, okay, I guess there's not the interest. If this interests you, please come out, ask questions, hear the possibilities, and we're at least going to explore this as something that we'll give uh, as a matter of prayer and seeking the Lord's wisdom in. So Tuesday night, 6.30, believe I got the time right, uh, here. Romans chapter 10, uh, in, in what will be uh, intended to be the, the final study through this chapter Um, And so the subject matter is brought to a conclusion. The concluding truths here that we're going to see are in this passage. So let's back up to verse 13 and read down through 21 together. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they've never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Let's pray. Our Lord God in heaven, we come, we bow ourselves before you. You are the mighty one, the only one worthy of worship. Lord, we come and draw near and we want to seek your face. You are our treasure. You're the one from whom all joy and blessing flows. Every pleasure of this earth is nothing in comparison to you, the author and the giver of all joy. You are the one we want. It is right for your name to be exalted and we want to the name of your son, the Lord Jesus, to be exalted to the highest place. We want the message of Christ in the gospel to go to the ends of the earth and for all to bow the knee to his rule. Lord, we pray that what we do here, uh, this time of worship and specifically now the time of study would be to that end. Lord, your name is going to be exalted. Everyone is going to bow. Everyone is going to see that you are great, majestic, and worthy of worship. And and even if every single one of us uh, here just wastes our lives, uh, that that what we're going to look at here has no impact on us and we go on to live a life of rebellion, you are not harmed by it. Your name will still be exalted. But God, it is our yearning desire 
that we would get the privilege of being people who see, who know, who honor you and are useful. Useful in in being servants to make the name of Christ known, the word of the cross, that the ends of the earth will hear and trust in Christ. We want this privilege, O God. We want your church to be built and we want to get to be used in doing it. We want your kingdom to come and we want to get to be used in the, in the, in the process. So Lord, we ask for this blessing. Lord, I pray that you would do something extraordinary now, supernatural now to do what we cannot do in our own strength. Lord, we could sit here and be thinking about a hundred other things. We ask that you will send your spirit Give us ears that hear with with a, a kind of hearing that transforms us. Please give us eyes to see that this would be a day that, that we are transformed into different kind of people. Please bring that, O oh God. Uh, I ask, O oh Lord, for any in the room that has never turned to Christ that this would be the the day that it happens because you draw them through the hearing of your word. Uh, Help me, O God, to be useful in uh, my role to play here of preaching your word. Help me to be clear and honest and accurate and faithful. And Lord, all of us to worship as we, we bow before you in the hearing of your word. Glorify your name. And we ask it through the name of your son. Amen. Well, happy Reformation Day. Uh, If you are uh, new, uh, not familiar with this, uh, this term that we use, Reformation, uh, what we are referring to uh, is a movement, uh, a movement of the gospel uh, that took place 504 years ago, uh, primarily in Europe, but then its effects spread throughout the world. And October 31st uh, is the day that we mark uh, when Martin Luther nailed uh, a document to the door of the church of Wittenberg. Uh, today actually marks 504 years uh, from that time that he nailed that 95 theses uh, to the door of the church of Wittenberg where he served as priest. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In the history of this world and how Jesus has been doing this, how he has been building his church, It has involved an awful lot of ordinary looking work, you know, country churches getting started, faithfully preaching the Bible for 50 years, very ordinary looking. But it also has involved times where God did the extraordinary. There were those seasons when it was like fire broke forth upon the earth and and great transformation came. And we mark the Reformation as uh, one of those seasons. Uh, Martin Luther nailed that 95 theses to the door. We we mark it as the official start and uh, an awakening broke forth throughout Europe. These 95 theses were a a list of 95 places where the church in Luther's day had become corrupted, 95 places where there were abuses, false teachings, uh, man-made religion, people just inventing whatever they want, tradition forming on its own and breaking from the word of God. And so he, he posted this list of 95 places where the church had left the scriptures. The word Protestant, Uh, comes out of the Reformation. Uh, Protestants were those who were protesting, protestant, protesting the abuses, the false teachings, and the corruptions that had come to Jesus's church. The Reformation began, and uh, if you like history, it really is a a fascinating thing to study sometime how the Reformation changed history, uh, the effect that it had on the world. Uh, The Reformation brought an incredible expanse to education throughout the world. But understand that it was not primarily an educational movement. The Reformation brought an incredible expanse to humanitarian aid, you know, the the caring for the widow and the orphan, the feeding of the poor, but it was not primarily a movement of charity. The Reformation brought an incredible amount of 
financial flourishing. Again, a great study you could do sometime is looking at uh, throughout Europe how there was an increase in the excellence of craftsmanship. There was the, the growth of the middle class, financial security that spread throughout. But understand, it was not a, a financial movement. What the Reformation was, first and foremost, was a movement of the preaching of the Bible. A recovery of the scriptures. You know, in one sense, it's kind of like that account in the Old Testament where uh, a segment of the word of God had been lost for a season of time. And then they found it one day and they began to read it and teach it. And it brought transformation throughout the nation of Israel. The, the word of God had been abandoned over the course of time. And what happened in the Reformation is that there was a sp sweeping influence of a recovery of the gospel, a recovery. It was a movement of the preaching of the Bible. And when the word of the cross is preached, stuff happens. When the message of Christ is preached, when the word of God is actually heralded, by the way, that's not just having church. When the word of God is actually heralded with the authority that it really has. It brings change. It brings flourishing. Uh, one of the hymns that I really like is, is that hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. And one of the verses reads, Crown Him the Lord of Peace, uh, whose power a scepter sways from pole to pole that wars may cease and all be prayer and praise. His reign shall know no end and round his pierced feet, fair flowers of paradise extend their fragrance ever sweet. What that verse is saying is that where the foot of Christ is planted, flowers grow. This is a cursed and barren earth a broken world under the judgment of God, but where Christ plants his foot, there will inevitably come flourishing uh, from this. And so the education, the financial prospering, the humanitarian aid, all of the ways that the Reformation influenced the world. By the way, all that other stuff is what the, the people of the world always obsess over. Okay, that's where their obsession is. And they miss the point. The point is it was a movement of the preaching of the Bible. Follow this just quick little argument with me. Every person's greatest need is eternal life. You have a soul that will last forever. There is nothing you need more than you need eternal life. You were made for God to know God. Your entire point, the entire point is that you would be right with God. Know God, live unto God, have fellowship with God. God, this is why you exist. When you have that relationship with God, when you are in fellowship with God, that joy, that fullness that you are hungering for, it is promised to you. We taste it now. We will drink fully of it later, but it is yours. You were made for fellowship with God. And in the beginning, mankind had this in its, in its fullness, because every day God came down and God walked with man. Adam and Eve enjoyed a fellowship with God that does not exist in fullness right now in this age, in this life. It was different. Adam and Eve saw a form with their eyes. They heard his voice audibly. They felt his presence. But then came rebellion, the curse, brokenness of this world. And it's, it's all very different now. You are able to be right with God. You are able to walk with God and have fellowship with God, but it is in a lesser way than what existed at the beginning. And it is lesser than what it will one day be when we behold his face. But I want you to consider what that means for right now in this age. We fellowship with God. We are made right with God. We walk with God in a way that is different than what was and what will be. This is a world that is under curse, darkness, judgment. This is an age not of sight, but of faith. Does that make sense? 
what I'm, what I'm trying to say there? It's an age not of sight. We don't get to see him. We don't get to feel the heat. We don't get to hear the angels' voices. We're not walking on streets of gold. This is an age, part of the curse, we engage with God in a different way. The way is God has spoken. God has spoken. God from heaven has given the message to mankind. This is the way we engage with him right now. So I don't know if you're in your life, you've ever asked the question. I've asked this, you know, years past, this kind of thing of like, why doesn't God, you know, just fully just show up in this room right now in such a way like Mount Sinai, you know, we see angels, all this kind of stuff. Like, why won't he just like be there all the way? And part of the reason is that's part of the curse. That's part of the curse. This age is not an age of enjoying the fullness of God. It is an age where we walk by faith. The revelation that God has given is not the fullness of what it will be. He has spoken and we live by faith. The way that we are made right with God, the way that we walk with God, the way that we fellowship with God is this. It is through his word. It is through engaging with God through the scriptures. If you think about it, every part of what we do in worship, which worship is seeking God, worship is engaging and fellowshipping with God, it's seeking his face. Every part of your private worship, family worship, and then corporate worship, the church's worship together. If you think about it, you know, everything we do was given to us by God. You know, we didn't invent prayer. God did. He gave it to us. Okay. Every part of our worship is all about some way of engaging with him through his word. So the, the way that some have said it um, is we read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, and we see the Bible. See the Bible is in the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Every part of our worship is somehow about engaging with him through his word. And the reason why in this age, this is how we know him. Every soul is under judgment, but God has made the way through his son to bring salvation, to bring deliverance out of judgment, to escape the hell that we deserve. And that way is through Christ. You must be united to Christ. You must be saved from the fate that you deserve. And the way that you receive Christ, the way that you are united to him is by faith. And the argument of the text has been, no one will turn to Christ unless they believe. No one will believe unless they hear. There will be no hearing unless someone tells, and there will be no telling unless there is sending. And the part that we're emphasizing here is through that series of steps uh, for you, Christian, how your soul was saved for the rest of the world, how they will come to faith in Christ it is the telling of the message, the telling, the communicating, the preaching. But by preaching, I don't just mean what we're doing now. Yes, of course, this is an, an important part of that. It's one of the big ways that the church does this. But I'm also referring to the day in and day out telling that the people of God do in this earth to their children, to their neighbors around the world, announcing it in every way. It is the telling of the message that is at the center. The way to know God is through his word. The way to fellowship with God is through his word. I say all of that to highlight the why behind the emphasis of this movement of the preaching of the gospel and why it is that we today, given marching orders from Christ, why the telling has this place of priority. So coming back to the Reformation here, Martin Luther said, regarding the tremendous impact that his work had on the world. You, you gotta know there'd be tremendous uh, temptation to arrogance, okay? If, if, if you and I had been used to something so, uh, so weighty. But he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, or drink Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf. The words so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did 
everything. John Calvin became the world's greatest expositor of the Bible during the Reformation in the city of Geneva. Geneva, Switzerland became this, this headquarters uh, for the equipping and training of men to go out to pastor and plant churches and, and be, uh, do, do missions. Uh, he, he had one thing that he did consistently, one way that he impacted the world. He taught the Bible verse by verse. He did it every day, by the way, seven days a week, verse by verse, he taught the Bible. The influence that he had there at Geneva was so extraordinary that even the city magistrates came to John Calvin and they, they had him influence the, the laws of the land and such. But there came a day, there came a day when the city of uh, Geneva grew disgruntled with Calvin. You know, they got tired of the preaching of the Bible. They got uh, disgruntled with him and the church outed him and the city actually banished him, banished him from the city. So this place where he was once this champion and this hero, they, they outed him. And, but they, uh, they eventually realized uh, the stupidity of what they had done after about three years. Three years, they outed him and they, they began to plead with him to come back. And so, you know, in one of those rare moments of the earth, you know, he got to stand up in front of the crowd that had wronged him and be vindicated. You know, I'm sure you're a lot godlier than I am. I would have been tempted on that day uh, to really take that opportunity uh, to give a big spiritualized kind of I told you so uh, sort of moment and kind of gloat in that moment. What John Calvin did, though, he ascended the stairs to the pulpit and with no word whatsoever regarding what they had done to him and all the ways they had wronged him. He simply opened his Bible and invited them to study the very next verse he had left off with three years previously. What he did is preach the Bible verse by verse and fire broke out on the earth. Thousands of men were trained to go out with the gospel. I told you the story of William Tyndale just a few weeks ago who translated the Bible and then was savagely tortured and murdered. The Catholic Church tortured, murdered, mutilated, burned alive, and desecrated uh, him, thousands of other Christians who dared to read or translate the Bible into the language of the people. But I want you to think about Tyndale. He did one thing. He translated the Bible and he died. He translated the Bible and then died. He didn't formulate some complex political plot. He didn't manage armies. He never built any kind of empire through intellect or leadership skills. He just translated the Bible. He didn't even get a finish and then died and fire broke out on the earth. The word of God became available. And as people read the scriptures, uh, th there was a gospel movement that burned in England for a strong 150 years. The era of the Puritans and separatists and such. The era that the Anabaptists, which is where we take some of our lineage from, that came out of this, all came a result of something very simple. The Bible being available. And when the tr scriptures were translated, God used it. And here's my point with all that I'm showing and why I'm bringing this into bear on this text. It is the word that is the power of God. It is the scriptures. It's the word that does it all. Where the foot of Christ is planted, flowers grow, but faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This final section of chapter 10 that we're ready for finishes out this argument that's been building through chapter 10 and all of the discussion that has come about the telling, the telling, the sending of the gospel out. We now come to the concluding uh, truths that are going to be pointed out there. And he brings it back to where we began. So we, we began with this question of, how are we to understand what God is doing in the nations and what God is doing among Israel, that people that he had chosen for special things? And then in the course of that discussion, we went into all of this talk about the work of the gospel and the telling and the sending. And so we see some more of that. And then it's brought to a conclusion down at the end here. So here is, here is this final point. It's the fourth point in the outline that we made of chapter 10, and it is this. 
The message of the gospel is being sent throughout all of the earth. The message has been sent. The problem with why the world is rejecting Christ is not because of a lack of opportunity. It is not for lack of the message. The reason why the nations, and then it does address addressing the, the people of Israel specifically, because that's been part of the discussion. The reason why the nations and Israel are rejecting Christ is because of verse 21, disobedient and obstinate hearts. It is the depravity that we have within our own chest, within our own souls. So let's walk through the passage. I'm going to take us verse by verse through it, and we'll, we'll consider each one as it comes. So look back to verse 16 again. So after explaining the whole sequence of steps, the logical steps of the telling of the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, the believing, look at verse 16, the however now. There's a turn. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? What that is showing is that while the gospel is being preached, unbelief still exists. Unbelief is still pervasive. So if you misunderstood the world, we could read 13, 14, and 15 kind of with this idea all who call on the name of Christ will be saved. To call on him, you have to believe. To believe, you have to hear. Go through the whole sequence. And then we learn the message of the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. If we misunderstood the world, we might wrongly conclude at that point, awesome, everybody's going to get saved now. Because everybody's hearing, right? Isn't that how it works? That's where the however comes. There's, there's, a, there's a shift in the tone here. However, they did not all heed the good news. If you think that this is a world filled with good people who all want God, you misunderstand the world. If you think this is a world filled with a population who are all looking and searching for God. And once they hear the truth, they will run to Jesus. You misunderstand the world. It's one of the hardest truths to swallow when you first start studying and believing the Bible. I remember being a new Christian, new studier of the Bible, and this one gave me more fits than anything else. It is the reality that men hate God. It takes a lot to swallow that. It is absolutely contrary to all the message, everything that we hear in the world, which is always, uh, which is always talking about people are good, people are good, people are good. You cannot read 10 minutes in the Bible and come away with that conclusion that this is a world filled with people who all want God. Psalm 14, which in the providence of God, well, Marcus read, for our call to worship uh, this morning, God looks down from heaven to see if there are any who seek after him, if there are any who do good. And the conclusion is there are none. We are a planet filled with people who resist God, who have stubbornness in our hearts towards him. And what that means is one of the truths that we will highlight here is what that means is souls need a miracle in order to overcome our obstinance and unbelief. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ because God came to you and did something you could not do for yourself. But what it means is as the gospel goes out to the nations, what did Jesus say? Did he say that the way uh, that leads to life is broad or the way that leads to destruction is broad? The way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. That is what this passage is uh, emphasizing. So to do that in verse 16, Paul quotes uh, a verse from uh, the Old Testament, qu quotes a passage from Isaiah. And here's what's going on in that section. Uh, sometime if you want to read it on your own, you can read chapters 51, 52, and 53 of Isaiah. But let me give you just the, the quick like 60 second version of what's happening there. 
Throughout the book of Isaiah, God called to the people. Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus came to the earth. And it was written 150 years before Babylon marched against Judah and, and brought the judgment. So judgment was still a long way off. Isaiah preached to the people the message of God and said, you need to repent. Judgment is one day going to come. And so there's a lot of that talk, but there's also talk of what God would do after the judgment. And there's the promise of future restoration, future deliverance, future salvation. And of course, we know that what that's ultimately referring to is the salvation that Christ has brought, eternal redemption, not just deliverance in an earthly sense from a nation. But what you have there in that passage is uh, it, it talks about the deliverance will come. Lift up your head, uh, O Zion, your God has not abandoned you. He's giving you grace. That's where the line in verse 15 comes. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That's the passage that comes from. Deliverance is going to come. The people who announce that good news, their feet are beautiful. Okay. And then it moves on where God says, I'm going to send my servant, referring to the Messiah, uh, the Lord Jesus. I'm going to send my servant and he is going to come and he is going to bring this redemption. He's going to bring salvation. Okay. And by the, by the time you end with chapter 52, it's all happy, filled with joy. Yay. God's going to deliver through the Messiah. Isaiah 53 verse one, the very next verse starts with this, Lord who is believed. And so you have this contrast here. God is going to send his Messiah. He is going to bring deliverance and joy and sal salvation, but people won't believe. And then Isaiah 53 goes into the death of the Messiah, the suffering and the torture of the Messiah. The servant of the Lord will come, but he will not be believed. There's a great turn in the tone there uh, of what comes after that. You need to remember this Christian as well. You know, so if you're an Old Testament believer trying to understand how chapter 52 and 53 can both be true at the same time, that would be very confusing. Remember that with all of our questions about things that have not yet come as well. But the point there is Paul is capturing this idea that while the gift of God in salvation has been sent to the earth, and it is the case that all men should go running to the Messiah, the fact of the matter is unbelief still pervades. It shouldn't be this way, but it is this way. And understanding it helps you understand this world. Now, has, has the thought ever bothered you? Have you ever thought about, you know, taking a step back from reality and just thought about the gospel and all of these things? Has it ever bothered you that you have fixed your hope? You, you, have, you have tied your anchor, your everything to the message of the gospel, to a message that the majority of the world thinks is a joke. Does that ever bother you? You know, for some people, they can't handle it. Some people just have to be a part of, you know, pull the audience, whatever the largest percentage believe, I have to be in that group. You've maybe even heard people refer to uh, the idea. Well, you know, you, 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 you silly Christian, you, you believe this message. Don't you know that, you know, like uh, four fifths of the whole world doesn't believe what you believe. They can't all be wrong, can they? There's an assumption. There's an assumption in that people are good, People are wise and surely the majority will figure this out. The Bible rejects that presumption. The Bible tells us instead the reality of this world. This is a world under the curse. This is a world of darkness. This is a world of blindness. This is a world that resists God. God sent his light into the world. And what did Jesus say? Men hated the light and loved the darkness. You are understanding the world better by getting a grasp on Romans 10, 16 to 21 here. Look at verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What is being shown there, you know, similar to what was taught in verses 14 to 15 is that it is the preaching of the gospel that is the means, that is the way 
that God is fulfilling his purposes on the earth. Listen, God's purpose in this age, it is to save a host of people to become his sons and daughters, to give them life eternal, to bring them to himself, to be their God throughout eternity, for them to enjoy fellowship. This is what God is doing in this age. The agenda of God in history is the gospel. Christian, you need to know that Christ crucified and risen, the word of the cross, the message of salvation, it's not just a truth that is true among hundreds of others. The gospel is the agenda for all of the universe and throughout all of history. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ it is a truth that we need to comprehend in understanding what God is doing in the world. That simple set of steps that we talked about, the calling, the believing, the hearing, the preaching, the sending, these, we have to understand this is God's means for accomplishing his agenda in the earth. From that statement, Romans 10, 17 needs to be a verse that is near and dear to you and part of the core of your understanding of, of why this world is the way that it is and God's plans for the church. There are hundreds of applications flowing out of that truth. You know, I, I could preach the next 52 Sundays on Romans 10, 17 and every week have a different application of what this means for us as his people but one of the ones we must bear in mind principally, the church needs to remember why the telling of the message of the cross is uh, what defines us. The church must know that this is our identity and this is our principal work. Follow this with me a little bit. We, we as Christians and as the, the, the church unit, the church body as a whole, we are a people who are called to do. By doing, I mean care for the poor, love the widow, feed the hungry, serve your neighbor, the doing of good deeds, on and on, okay? But doing is not our first and our principal identity, and it is not our first and our principal work as a church, our principal identity is that we are those who belong to Christ. We became those who belong to Christ by the hearing of the gospel. Our identity is not first and foremost charitable people. It's first and foremost blood-bought people. And our principal work is not first and of the highest priority a bunch of list of good deeds to go do. As a church, what is our primary Mission, the great commission Jesus has given us. It is the telling. It is the preaching of the message. Now we gotta, we gotta always bear in mind so that we don't justify ourselves. You and I believe are called to a whole lot of doing. Thousands and thousands of works of doing. A true Christian is one uh, who becomes inspired to want to go care for the hungry, uh, uh, feed, uh, feed, feed the hungry, all, all of these kinds of things. You know, we've got the shoe boxes that we're doing up here pretty soon. This is exactly the kind of thing Christians do. But I, I'm drawing a distinction for you. The Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes are not what principally define us. What principally defines us is the message of the gospel that there is uh, salvation available through the blood of Christ and it is the telling of that message that is our principal work. God brings his kingdom to earth through the building of Jesus' church. Jesus builds his church through the saving of souls. Souls are saved through the hearing and believing of the gospel. This is our principal identity. This is our principal work. We must never lose sight of why we do what we do. Why the church is what we are. Why we are not just a charitable organization. We will do charity, but it is not our identity. Does it make sense? The world likes it when the church is a big charity organization. They're fine with that. The world despises it 
when we make our principal work to be heralding and announcing a message that is so inconvenient to humans. A message of you must be made right with God. You're not okay. And there is something that you need. You need Christ. You need to know and be on board with this approach to why we do what we do, Christian. The telling of the message is, is part of the core of who we are. Now, I'm going to further apply this a little bit, and it might sound a little bit off topic. I assure you this is directly connected. The American church has been suffering for a long time now from an identity crisis. Wrestling with who we are, what we're supposed to be doing, what we want. As a part of this, all this is connected. America is destroying pastors faster than maybe any other place and time in history. Now, I, I get it, bringing that up can maybe sound self-serving. I just ask you not to receive it that way. And somebody could be thinking, is this Pastor Josh's passive-aggressive way of dealing with some problem that's going on? It's not, okay? This is how we all get on board with who we are and why we do what we do. America is chewing up and spitting out pastors faster than we can replenish them. Uh, the hard and fast number, this was, this was the number right before the pandemic, okay, so... World's been weird for the last year and a half, but right before the pandemic, 250 pastors quit every single month. So in America, 250 quit. Burnout, fatigue, falling to sin, et cetera, et cetera. So pastoral ministry is one of these offices that we're sending these waves and armies of young men into. They burn out within five years and then they're done and we have to just try to keep sending more in. And one of the greatest contributing factors to this is unbiblical ideas of what the church is supposed to be, unbiblical expectations for what pastors are supposed to be doing because it is a misunderstanding of our identity, a misunderstanding of our work and what we are supposed to be doing. Our modern day, with its obsession with business models, has unbiblical ideas of what the church is supposed to be doing, what our methods are supposed to be, and, and how we're supposed to be engaging in this work of being the church. The American church has not wanted preachers. The American church has not wanted holy men. Now, when you look at the qualifications in scriptures for what God wants her shepherds to be, what does he say? Godly men to be an example and then preach the Bible. But to people who want savvy businessmen, that just seems too simplistic. The American church has wanted creative entrepreneurs, social change champions, CEOs, psychiatrists, on and on in the, past, in the pastor's efforts to try to keep everybody happy, to try to fulfill all of these expectations and ideas, serve on every committer, committee, be a part of every pie bake sale, all these other kinds of things. At the end of the day, he has only crumbs of effort left to give to the one thing, the one thing that he's been called to lead the church in, study and pray so as to preach the word of God with whatever fire God allows him to have. But see, all of that just seems so simplistic. In our day that, that believes the wisdom of man, and by the way, you know, it just gets so frustrating, um, all of our denominational leaders um, who are just eating paint chips, I guess, and just uh, buying into every modern idea of what uh, could possibly be used of always, if you go to some denominational leadership thing about how do you start a church, plant a church, grow a church, you're gonna hear nothing but a couple hours of uh, appeals to technology, programs, innovative ideas about how to get excitement and morale up, all of this kind of nonsense. And all it, all it is, is the wisdom of man trying to say, how do we build a crowd? Because when you look at God's methods, God's methods, how is Jesus building the church? Read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, see the Bible. It all just seems so weak and empty. But Christian, we have to believe at the core of our theology, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There is a reason 
why the telling of the message is our principal work and not just charity. We will do charity, but the preaching of the word of the cross. This is what defines us. And this is our great work because God builds his kingdom by Jesus building his church. Jesus builds his church by souls being saved. Souls are saved through the hearing and believing of the gospel. And this is what Paul is showing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But now look at verse 18. But, but I say, surely they've never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Let me kind of reword, summarize what Paul is saying in this section. All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. To do that, there has to be the sending, the telling, the hearing, the believing, etc. So now consider, Israel has not embraced the Lord Jesus. So what's the problem? Is the problem that they have not heard? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, but they are not believing. So what's the problem? Have they not heard? That's the question being asked here. Paul's clarifying, see what he's doing in a, again, a logical argument. He's clarifying the singular issue. Is the issue that they haven't heard? So verse 16, they haven't believed. Verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Verse 18, but have they heard? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. So that, that, that's the flow of thought here. So what is the problem? Well, jumping ahead to verse 21, you see what, what he is showing the problem is. The problem is not lack of hearing. The message of Christ has gone out into all of the earth. It goes out abundantly and prolifically to the nations. And that's mentioned. And so especially then to Israel, that's what he's emphasizing by quoting this verse uh, that he does in, in verse 18. He's quoting Psalm 19. Now, um, we've said before, when scripture quotes something from the Old Testament, it does mean for us to go back there and get familiar with the whole text, the whole chapter of what's being said there. Psalm 19. Uh, for you guys who come on Wednesday nights, uh, about a month ago, we did a three-week study through Psalm 19. It's incredibly important. It's a, it's a massively important chapter to understanding the world. In Psalm 19, there is the explanation of general revelation and then special revelation. General revelation is what God has revealed about himself through the sun, the moon, the stars, babies, music, sex, sunsets, delights, all of it, creation. There is a lot about God that can be known simply through looking at the moon. You look at the moon, you can come to some conclusions. The creator must be really mighty to hang that object in the cosmos. The creator must be glorious because he's made something beautiful, okay? You can go down a list. There are a lot of truths about God to be known simply from looking at the moon. Special revelation, on the other hand, is when God delivers a message by word. So it is the scriptures, the word of God, what's been delivered through the prophets, through the law, okay? Through the preaching of the gospel. That's special revelation. Psalm 19 in talking about general revelation, what can be known about God in creation, says that God has preached a message, okay? Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. What's there in verse 18? Was said about general revelation, about creation in Psalm 19. Paul quotes that and now applies it to the gospel. This is kind of a big point. Kind of a big point to understanding history and the covenants. He is using it to refer to how pervasively the message of the gospel has gone and is going out into all the earth. Now understand what he's not saying. He's not saying that the truth that can be known about God through the sun, the moon, the stars, etc., is the gospel. It's not. The gospel is the message of Christ and salvation. Paul is not saying that what can be learned about God through looking at the moon is enough to be saved. Okay. Three times in this chapter, we've made it clear. You must specifically believe on the, the Lord Jesus. 
You can look at the moon and see a lot of things. You cannot look at the moon and discern a message about God's son and redemption and salvation through faith in his son. That message is the gospel. What Paul is doing is showing what God had done previously in creation, he is now doing with the gospel. The message of the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. By the time the apostles died, the entire Roman empire had been reached with the message of the gospel. And over the course of the next centuries, the gospel has covered the globe three and a half times now. Now don't misunderstand, we still have a job to do. We are still to know that there is an urgency and a burden to get the gospel to the remaining tribes and languages that have not yet heard the name of Jesus and the message of salvation. We have reached all the big ones and all the easy ones. What is left now are the smaller tribes and languages and the hardest to reach, okay? We still have that job to do, but it doesn't change the fact that God has now done something in this new covenant that is different than what he did in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, who had special revelation, the message of salvation? One people. One. Out of all the peoples of the earth, one. In this new covenant, God has done something different. In this new covenant, God is now giving the message of the scriptures, the word to the ends of the earth. We will continue doing this work, announcing the word of the cross until we've reached the last tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And then Jesus said in Matthew 14, then the end will come. This is something that God is doing now. And so understand Paul's point. What God had once done in prolifically teaching knowledge of himself through creation, God is now doing through the gospel. But it brings us then to understand this. God is sending the gospel all around the world to the nations. And so, yes, especially Israel, because that's now the subject at hand. Especially Israel has heard. They have heard. Uh, look at verse 19. But I say... Surely Israel did not know, did they? Now he's going to quote some scripture to show that even all of this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Notice he quotes the law and the prophets, Moses and Isaiah. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. So in other words, um, that is God prophesying even all the way back in the books of Moses, Deuteronomy, uh, showing that he would one day make Israel jealous by saving souls from non-Jewish nations. And then verse 20, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me, Gentile nations and tribes of the earth that were not seeking for God, but God brought the gospel to them anyway. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So now we come to one of the big conclusions of the chapter. Remember, we began with, what's God doing? Why isn't Israel being saved? This was one of the big questions that was being asked. Why isn't Israel turning to Christ? There have been a lot of answers to that. Here's the last one. The depravity and the obstinance of man's heart. We ask the question, well, we start with the beginning. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Okay. Did God send tellers of the gospel to Israel? Yes. Did those tellers obey and go? Yes. Did Israel hear? Yes. Jesus traveled throughout all Israel. The apostles continued the work. In every year since that day, the people of God on the earth have been announcing, telling, preaching the word of the cross, and that includes an especialiness to Israel. So have they heard? Yes. Did they believe? No. He is making sure we understand where the blame lies. The problem is not God not sending. The problem is not lack of opportunity. The problem is is the sinfulness of man's heart. This is significant. 
This is significant for us to understand the world, human nature, why things are the way that they are. Again, there are lots and lots of applications that could be drawn from it. Here's one of them. As you study church history, you'll encounter time after time uh, of something that sounds pretty familiar to our day. Some guy who thinks he's just really brilliant, he looks around at the church and he says, you know, we're just a joke. The church is just weak today. You know, we used to be strong and affluent, you know, but modern man no longer wants the things that the church offers. And by the way, they were using that kind of language, modern man, like 1700 years ago. Modern man is sophisticated. Modern man doesn't care about the book of Leviticus anymore. Modern man doesn't care about the first 11 chapters of Romans theology we need to change things up. We need to adjust things so that modern man will want to be appeal, will find appeal in the gospel and the church. This, this was happening more than a thousand years ago. And then the, the German liberal theologian Schleiermacher, one of the ones who really impacted Europe uh, in a negative way, was saying the same kind of thing. You know, modern man doesn't believe in miracles anymore. We need to go through and do an adjustment to the Bible so that we tell modern man, now we're not so stupid as to actually believe God did this. We just think it's figurative and then it'll appeal to modern man. And then in America, there was an effort for a season of time to secularize Christianity. In other words, remove all of those things that make people from the world feel uncomfortable. You know, talk about prayer and conviction, these spiritual matters. We need to secularize religion so that it appeals to man. And then, of course, we look around at our day, dancing showgirls swinging from ceilings, appeal to modern man. So we ask the question, is the problem the message is the problem God's design for the church? The problem is man's sinful heart. If we go changing God's methods, if we go change the message, if we go try to change the church in order to be more appealing, you lose the power. If we go trying to do the things that will grow a crowd through all of the ways we all know we could list out there, get things real exciting and technology and blah, 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 all these kinds of things, just in a big production to try to entertain and dance so that the world will want to come, you lose the gospel. You lose the point. The problem is not God's design. The problem is the sinfulness of man's heart, but it still remains. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We announce, we preach the word of the cross. You tell and you tell and you tell and you tell. And it is the case. Great amounts of the world will reject it. But in the midst of that, God will call out of them to himself, those that he pleases. You and I were in the same place resistant to God until God came and did a work in us, a miracle, the miracle of the new birth that comes by the hearing of the gospel. This is why our primary work is the work of telling the preaching of the word of Christ. So if you have never made a conscious decision to turn to Christ, knowing that you need to be saved, knowing that you need eternal life. This is what you need more than anything. You must be made right with God. And that way is by responding, turning to Christ. Don't let yourself talk yourself out of the reality that God explains in the scripture. You are not okay on your own. You must have Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your work in sending your son, all that you have accomplished. God, we ask that we would be a people as individuals and as a church who are adamant and active in the work of telling the message of Christ. Lord, make us to be a church that preaches to the world, draws souls to you, that is useful to the building of your kingdom. Bless us, um, empower us, enable us in this work. 
Lord, as we're going to leave, we pray that you'll uh, bless us as we fellowship, as we talk. And uh, God, please be with us as we go care for us, O oh Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.